Hi everyone, welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight our topic is equine uh, metabolic issues. What are the differences? And it is brought to you by uh, Metabarol, made by Equithrive. If you're listening tonight, I'm guessing you have a horse who might have gained some weight easily, or maybe his neck is getting a bit crusty, or possibly his coat has seemed a little bit more shaggy than in years past. If you have one of these metabolic type horses who's showing signs of Cushing's equine metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance, you're definitely not alone. And if you're confused about the difference between these conditions, then you're definitely, definitely not alone. To help us all better understand equine metabolic issues, we're joined tonight by Dr. Amanda Adams, a researcher at the University of Kentucky, and Dr. Vernon Dryden of Burr Oak Equine Veterinary and Podiatry Services. Uh, so we're going to jump right in because we have a ton of questions. We're going to start with Dr. Adams. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience and interest in these metabolic horses? Yeah, sure. It's, and it's also great to be joining you here for this podcast, a very important topic indeed. And so I have a personal interest as I've owned a number of horses that have had both PPID and EMS um, metabolic issues. Um, but professionally, my interest started in 2011 whenever I started my research program, which was really focused on geriatric horses and really looking at the effects of old age on immune responses in geriatric horses. And of course, given the fact that about 30% of geriatric horses are affected by PPID, my interest then expanded into um, the study of endocrine diseases of both PPID and equine metabolic syndrome. So at the University of Kentucky, we currently have a herd of both PPID and EMS horses that we're trying to better understand and answer some questions that you all may have tonight. Uh, and Dr. Dryden, can you tell us about your interest in metabolic issues and, and the role that those play in your practice? Absolutely, and thank you for having me tonight. Um, hope to get into some good conversation. Um, so this is a really uh, important topic for uh, many of the clients and patients that I treat because many of them are laminitic uh, due to their metabolic disorder, dysfunction, and PPID. Um, so a majority of the cases, laminated cases that I work on um, in my practice being solely lameness and podiatry based um, are due to uh, this, uh, this element. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a very large uh, demographic of horses that I deal with that, uh, that have this issue. So it's, it's very close to my heart for sure. A quick review uh, of our Ask the Horse live format for everyone who's listening. We're going to be starting with the questions that you submitted during registration. Uh, as we move through those, if you have questions you'd like to ask live, or if you have a follow-up question or a clarification from one of the doctors, you can enter those in the chat window in front of you if you have joined us uh, via your web browser. We're going to do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, I'm going to start with um, Dr. Dryden. Can you explain to us a little bit about what we mean by a quote metabolic horse? What specific conditions are we talking about and how are they related or not related? Absolutely. So let's first talk about um, what we see uh, phenotypically uh, in a metabolic horse. These are our easy keepers. These are the horse, the horses that 
seem to get fat on air. Um, they they always have a, a nice heavy heavy uh, fat layer on them um, with distinct uh, fat deposition over the over the tail head, um, um, just behind the withers uh, and the crusty neck. Um, very very typical for what we see in a metabolic horse. Um, the key being that these horses have an insulin dysregulation or insulin resistance, um, and that uh, coupled with um, pasture and carbohydrate intake and inability to monitor and, and regulate their insulin leads to a cascade of events that causes uh, laminitis, which is another very uh, uh, common scenario that we see with these cases. So um, that that's pretty much it in a nutshell, aside from the uh, PPID or the Cushing horses, which can also have uh, metabolic uh, EMS and insulin resistance. So you can have the, the full Monty, if you will, um, with some horses that have both EMS and uh, PPID or Cushing's. Dr. Adams, we have a question from Gail in California, and Gail says that she's heard that metabolic testing should be done in the fall, but recently read that maybe it could be done at any time, which is true. Okay, good question. So when we're talking about diagnosing insulin dysregulation, we're looking at more specifically um, the equine metabolic syndrome horse. And so when we diagnose insulin dysregulation, we're either um, measuring basal resting insulin concentrations or insulin responses to um, the oral sugar test uh, more likely than not. And so we really don't see or we don't have the research behind this to say that season affects insulin responses. So when we're looking at diagnosing for insulin dysregulation, we can test throughout the year and we have reference ranges um, established for both basal insulin and obviously insulin responses to the OST. Now, when we're talking about diagnosis for PPID, um, and in diagnosing PPID, and aside from uh, clinical signs of disease, we're looking at resting ACTH levels or ACTH levels in response to the TRH stimulation test. And those are ACTH, our um, levels of ACTH and their response to TRH are greatly affected by fall. So we currently have reference ranges for um, resting ACTH for fall and non-fall uh, months, but we do not have reference ranges for the ACTH response to the TRH stem test, not quite yet. We've actually done some research um, trying to establish some of those fall and non-fall cutoff values for the TRH stem test, but those results are not yet um, published. So that's when you, you, you can test for resting ACTH levels in fall and non-fall months, but you should not be testing with the TRH stem test in the fall months. We do not have reference ranges for that, but outside of the fall months, yes, you can test using the TRH stem test. So, Dr. Adams, am I understanding correctly then that the test for the EMS or IR horse is different from the, the Cushing's horse? Yes. Well, okay. If you're correct. So when we're talking about the equine metabolic syndrome horse, we're more um, worried about insulin, more than likely worried about insulin dysregulation in those horses. Well, insulin dysregulation is a characteristic of EMS, right? And so then we're worried about insulin and testing for insulin. But for the equine Cushing's disease or pituitary parsing or media dysfunction or PPID, right, we're more interested in um, ACTH 
responses. But with that being said, our PPID horses can also be insulin dysregulated. So you um, might want to be testing for both. Okay. Yeah. And so that was going to be my next question um, for Dr. Dryden is how do you as a vet decide which test the horse needs? How do you know if this horse might be a cushionary horse or this horse might be an EMS or IR horse? That's that's a great question. You don't know unless you test. So typically if, if I have a horse that I get presented almost always, it's because they've gone through a laminetic episode. Um, I'm going to test for both because you, you don't want to take that chance of missing something. So I would recommend to, if you're going to pull, go through the, the motions of pulling the blood, you're, you might as well go ahead and test for both. It's, it's highly unlikely to have a PPID case in a young horse, uh, a horse less than 10, but it, mm -hmm. it can happen. Um, but, you know, that, that would be my recommendation is just to test for it if you're concerned. Uh, Dr. Adams, we have a question from Bernadette in Aiken, South Carolina, and she wants to know what are some of the first signs that your horse might be having metabolic issues. So Dr. Dryden had mentioned laminitis. Are there any signs earlier than an acute episode of um, laminitis? Right. So metabolic issues is quite broad. So when we're looking at the equine metabolic syndrome horse, early signs or first signs are, um, you know, they're starting to put on more weight. So you're looking at general um, obesity. So trying to keep track of your horse's body condition score would be very useful and helpful and making sure that that doesn't creep up over time. Also looking at the cresting neck scoring system. So paying attention to the neck crest and if that starts to you know, um, increase over time. Those are some subtle signs or signs that should flag that this horse may be becoming um, equine metabolic syndrome. In terms of the PPID horse, um, we can see subtle changes in attitude, uh, lethargy. You could start to see some regional hypertrichosis. Not, we're not talking general hypertrichosis, so the really shaggy, hairy, um, long-haired coat, but regional hypertrichosis, so the long more um, wispy type um, hairs that are along the chin, um, some on the legs, some under the belly. Um, and then you'll see some delayed um, shedding in these horses early on. And you will start to see some lost muscle mass on the top line. You might see that the horse is having more issues with recurrent abscess um, problems. And so those are really some signs that you should really start to do some diagnostic testing. Uh, Dr. Dryden, our next question is from Christine in Ohio for you. She wants to know if metabolic horses are always overweight or can they also be thin or instead be thin? Uh, uh, perfect. Another good question because this is where the lines get a little blurred. Typically, we think of a metabolic horse as an overweight horse with, you know, uh, easy keeper, fat deposition everywhere. and But these horses can also be thin if they also have a concomitant PPID issue. So the older horses that are also Cushing's but may have insulin resistance and, and metabolic syndrome are often very thin but still have a bit of a crusty neck and, and some odd adipose deposition in over the over the withers and tail head but are thinner horses. So um, yes, they can be both. Um, we have a question from our live audience, Dr. Adams. I'll give this one to you. It's from Connie, and she says that her vet uh, says that in the early stages of PPID, the test can come back negative. Uh, do you agree, and how might you treat, and how often would you or test 
uh, a horse uh, to check to see if, if they get a positive response. Okay, good question. Um, so if your horse is a suspect or early case PPID, your vet should be using the TRH stem test for diagnosing this horse because that's what we're trying to advocate for early diagnosis of PPID. So that's first things first. Um, uh, second is make sure, I always try to preach that, you know, the blood work is getting sent off to labs that have been validated uh, um, for assaying these hormones, and those would be Cornell, Cornell University, um, and Michigan State University for measuring ACTH and insulin. Those are the labs that I recommend. They have the validated assays and reference ranges for what is normal and what's normal, not normal. So, you know, if you're sending it, sending your blood off elsewhere, you might be getting false negatives. So, two really important points there. Um, and I would check it, you know, I think monitoring these animals is frequently as you want is great, but you know, at least do a fall and a spring um, endocrine test, um, I think is a really good recommendation. And Dr. Adams, it seems like recently there has been this push to to identify PPID earlier on than we used to. Like it used to be like, oh, mm -hmm. well, my horse has been shaggy for a while and kind of has some goopy eyes and maybe we had some abscesses and okay, we should probably go ahead and test. But now it's it's getting pushed earlier and earlier. What are the benefits of getting an earlier diagnosis? Yeah, good question. So an earlier diagnosis, then you can start treatment earlier. And Pergolide is the gold standard treatment for PPID. Pergolide will basically slow the regression or the progression of down. Um, it's not going to um, turn it off completely, but it's going to slow the progression of the disease, thereby slowing down some of the clinical associated problems that these horses have. So that's really the key is to really kind of be very proactive in that area because basically it's a you know we're talking about a pituitary. It's a tumor of the pituitary intermedia, um, and so once the tumor is established, you know, obviously this is pergolide. It's not like a chemotherapy type drug. It's not going to destroy or reduce the tumor itself, but it's going to slow the progression down from that tumor getting any larger um, and causing more problems. Um, we have a question from our live audience, uh, Dr. Dryden. I'm going to give this to you. It's from Esther. And Esther says that here in Canada, when the frost hits, the sugars are released into the grass almost overnight. How can we help our metabolic horse that's grazing on, on these pastures? Uh, well, if you know your horse is metabolic, um, simply don't allow them to graze or use a muzzle. A limit the grazing. Uh, uh, after a hard freeze for sure um, and because your your sugar content does go high sky high right after a hard freeze any any drastic change in weather whether it be hot or cold um, and then um, try to limit you know the exposure to grass if at all possible so there's no there's no real easy way to around it because these horses are so sensitive to uh, carbohydrate issues that uh, you, you can't allow them to ingest it if it is going to spike. So Dr. Dryden, you're um, in Lexington, correct? Correct. 
Okay, so and I am in Oregon in the desert, and so um, your guys' horses, he's my coworkers, the office is there in Lexington, and they're, all their horses are on pasture all the time, and my horses are on, on dirt all the time. Is it possible to notice um, EMS sneaking up on horses like mine that aren't out on pasture with access to grazing all the time? Um, I, I think I would be very, very, very uh, observant of your horse's phenotype and, and, you know, whether they are an easy keeper and, and how they respond to feed. And, and uh, I mean, I think that's going to be, and, and as Dr. Adams talked earlier about the, you know, uh, the hair coat, um, if they shed out well, um, how, how well their, their hair coat does shed out in certain areas. Um, that's all going to be give you good insight as to whether or not this horse uh, may have uh, an issue and to be careful about uh, the pastures. So um, until your horse is, you know, introduced to something like that, it's hard to know. But I think I would be very observant and cautious uh, going forward with it. Uh, Dr. Adams, we have a follow-up on your comment about um, pergolide. Liz is in our live audience, and she wants to know what is the difference between percent and pergolide? Uh, so percent is basically the, the brand name. Pergolide is the actual compound drug name, so it's the same thing. Okay. Um, Dr. Adams, we have a question from Raven in Wisconsin, and Raven says, what would be best to feed an Icelandic horse who is tested negative for metabolic issues but still gets fat just looking at grass hay? Right. Yeah, good question, and I think I, I always like to stand on my soapbox again, make sure, you know, your vet is doing the proper testing and make sure they're sending the samples off to the proper lab so that you're not getting false negatives. But if your horse is obviously uh, an air fern, you mm -hmm. still want to manage for um, obesity, right? So you really want to manage for that horse coming back to an ideal weight, right? Because we know obesity is a predisposing factor to horses developing insulin dysregulation. So you want to manage with diet and manage with exercise. But I would also like to point to when you're thinking about managing with diet, it's a really good idea to really try to get a proper weight on your horse. And if all you have access to is a weight tape, that's great. Um, but really figure out how much your horse weighs and how much hay you're actually feeding it based off of weight. So if you could get a weight on your flakes of hay, a weight on your horse, then you can calculate, um, you know, the percentage of hay that you should be feeding that horse. So we feed at 2% of body weight, hay to maintain body weight at current body weight. And then if we want to induce weight loss, we drop down to feeding them 1.5% body weight of hay. So I always try to tell people that's really, really important to try to really get a handle on the exact weight and what you're exactly feeding these horses. Mm -hmm. What does, or how does exercise play a role with those horses? Like, can you ever ride them enough to keep them from being overweight? Yeah, so exercise is great. I think as much as the horse can tolerate, um, some horses, though, especially if they are of a breed that is more predisposed to ecrometabolic syndrome, they can be somewhat resistant to even losing weight with exercise. So I think it's just not a one-size-fits-all situation. But exercise will, you know, help 
um, speed up metabolism, you know, um, help drop some of those insulin values down, help the horse lose weight. But exercise only works hand in hand if you're feeding the proper diet, right? So if you're feeding calorie excess and you're exercising a lot, then they're just going to, you know, they're going to, you know, they're going to basically defeat one another. So increased exercise along with slowly um, decreasing calorie intake should drop weight in these horses. Uh, Dr. Dryden, we have a question from our live audience. Uh, Fiona has an insulin-resistant mare who's 14. Three weeks ago, she had a laminitic episode that they caught early. She's now better, but seems very stiff in the mornings. Can Cushing's be present in the early stages um, with stiffness and gait, or can it present early on with stiffness and gait? Um, She said that she's looking at getting a PPI D test done as well. Yeah, I would definitely encourage getting uh, ACTH, endogenous ACTH done and and see what that shows you. Um, And if the results are non-conclusive, I would definitely go to a TRH stem test uh, with that. The fact that she has had a laminitic episode um, and is already metabolic, you know, there's a likelihood that you have uh, an additional you know, uh, process like PPID occurring. Um, so with that, I, I would like to also comment on one other thing. We were talking about Prescend or Pergolide um, and, you know, treating with that. Um, there are cases as a clinician that I get ambiguous results with um, ACTH testing, and um, I have to make a decision to treat or not to treat. Um, in some cases, even though I don't have a positive test result, I, I absolutely encourage testing for these and, and treating with positive test results. However, some of them are ambiguous, and I do end up treating because I have a laminitic horse that needs to be stabilized, and I will go ahead and treat with, with percent. And most of the time, I'm right. The horse responds, and, and we move forward. So just know that that is uh, an option, and as a clinician, you sometimes have to make that decision. Okay. We're actually, well, go ahead. Sorry. I was oh, just no. going to pop in and say we're actually investigating the effects of pergolite or percent on um, not only, you know, ACTH responses in the horse, because we obviously, we, we know what that does, but kind of what impact that has also on insulin responses. So it'll be interesting to see those results. And um, is there a timeline for when? that'll be published or are you guys in, in uh, the probably probably in another I'd say eight months or so we're kind of right in the middle of the study exciting though yeah that was, uh, we have, Beringer, I would like to put in a fact that Beringer is sponsoring this so they're excited about it as well um we have a question from Allison Dr. Adams and she would like to know what is the difference between EMS and an IR, and I think we got to that a little bit in the first question, but is there a succinct way that's just really clear for people who are listening so they can understand the difference between those type of two types of horses um, as we go through the questions? Yeah, and now we'd like to confuse everyone else, or everyone again, because we've got in the term inoculation. So um, equine metabolic syndrome is sort of an umbrella term that describes the horse that has three characteristics, increased um, obesity or general adiposity, um, they're insulin dysregulated, and then they're predisposed to laminitis. So that's the definition of an equine metabolic syndrome horse. 
if we want to define insulin dysregulation, that's a term now that encompasses both insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia. And hyperinsulinemia is essentially an increased basal level of insulin um, in these horses that are equine metabolic syndrome. It also encompasses the fact that these horses have high insulin values postprandially after you give them a meal or a response to an oral sugar test. So that's sort of hyperinsulinemia. Insulin resistance is actually when the tissues become insulin resistant, um, basically are not responding to the body's insulin. And so that's why then the pancreas has to try to overcompensate for the tissue insulin resistance um, and produce more insulin um, to help those tissues really um, bring in the glucose into the body. And so, in essence, those insulin-resistant animals are more than likely hyperinsulinemia, but they can be one or the other or both. And so, insulin dysregulation is a term that encompasses both fasting hyperinsulinemia, postprandial hyperinsulinemia, and or tissue insulin resistance. We have a question from our live audience, Dr. Dryden. It's from Maggie. And Maggie wants to know if there are non-pharmaceutical treatments for EMS. Uh, I, I think the most uh, logical um, treatment would be diet and exercise. Um, aside from that, um, uh, metabarol um, seems to be one of the most uh, effective uh, treatments that I've uh, used as far as regulating insulin. Um, so, you know, I think by far your your uh, balanced uh, ration diet and exercise um, are are going to be good. Um, supplements on the market that are supposed to help um, with uh, metabolic regulation uh, have magnesium and chromium in them. So uh, th those are your options as far as non-prescription uh, uh, pharmaceuticals. Okay. I'll just so, pop in really quick if you don't mind. Um, in yeah. terms of natural supplements, um, be careful with that because not a lot of research has been done behind some of those supplements that are out on the market. So in terms of chromium, there have been um, just one study, I believe, that actually in that study, or might have been two studies, that actually did not show an, an effect on insulin with chromium supplementation in horses. Um, and one magnesium study that did show some, uh, sorry, actually did not show effects uh, as well um, in, on insulin. Um, and then cinnamon is another one that people like to talk about, but no research has been conducted on that. Short-chain fructose oligosaccharide, the study was done on that, and it actually did show some modest improvement in insulin sensitivity. And then, of course, um, metabarol, I'm very familiar with. That is actually the active component in that is resveratrol, which is an anti-inflammatory antioxidant that is actually found in red wine. Um, and so we actually did the research behind that study and showed that postprandially, um, horses improved uh, their insulin responses uh, with that, which is an important thing um, to have. Um, our next question is for Dr. Dryden. It's from Laura in Oregon. Uh, Laura says she has a hunter that requires joint injections at the beginning of the show season. Is there any added risk if he's showing signs of weight gain and possibly a metabolic disorder going into uh, the spring and the show season? So this is a great topic and one that I wanted to make sure that we covered this evening because in my practice, I see um, uh, an over-representation of horses that are metabolic 
uh, and or Cushing's DPID that that become laminetic um, shortly following uh, treatment with corticosteroids for intra uh, intra um, uh, joint injections, essentially. So this is a really big concern for me. Um, you know, there I were talking with uh, Dr. Adam, uh, Dr. Adams earlier, and there is a scenario where um, soon after joint injections are performed on horses, we get a spike in insulin. Um, so in a horse that's already insulin resistant um, and has a high circulating insulin level, uh, this can push them over the edge because what we've seen in studies uh, has shown us that uh, high insulin levels uh, can cause a inflammatory response, a cascade that initiates a laminitic episode. So um, it is a very, very uh, big concern for me. And if your horse is metabolic um, or uh, even showing signs of it, I would be very, very cautious of uh, especially uh, multiple joint injections. Um, and I would prefer to use something like IRAP or uh, ProStride or some form of biologic as opposed to a corticosteroid if I did have to treat a joint for a condition. Yeah, and this is definitely a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, and we are hopefully in the next year going to be doing a study to, to compare some of the different glucocorticoids joint injections in, in normal healthy horses and how they compare in terms of um, insulin responses post those injections. As Dr. Dryden said, there's only been one published study that has shown post-injection using one uh, glucocorticoid um, type that insulin spike greater than 10 times. So you definitely don't want that to happen in a horse that's already metabolic or you are going to be dealing with laminitis and it's devastating as we all know. Okay. Uh, we have a question from our live audience. Uh, Connie wants to know how reliable are blood insulin level tests and what affects uh, the analytical results of those tests? Fasting, um, sample handling, stress. Uh, Dr. Adams, do you want to touch on that? Yeah, sure. So insulin is affected by um, essentially by the number of, of factors that you just uh, named off, but not nearly as uh, affected as ACTH is by stress. Um, and so insulin's pretty stable um, in terms to of handling the samples versus ACTH is a bit more sensitive to handling. Um, so insulin is pretty reliable. Um, and the recommendations are now, if you're looking at um, basal insulin responses in horses, there's actually no need to fast the animal. Um, so you can just uh, go out and grab, grab them from the pasture or out of your dry lot if they've been receiving hay and go ahead and pull the blood samples. And um, that, that, that that's no longer recommended to fast those animals to look at basal insulin. But if you are performing the oral sugar test, we're still recommending a three to eight hour fast with that. Um, so that the insulin is pretty reliable. Um, I measured thousands of samples, insulin uh, samples, and we've tested the same horse on different days and different months and throughout the year, and all of it really seems to make sense, um, the results that we get back. So I wouldn't be too concerned about that when you're talking about insulin. Now, ACTH, again, is a bit more um, responsive to stress situations, um, feeding, we know that actually feeding can actually affect ACTH levels and then handling the samples is, is also another one that um, your vet needs to take into consideration when um, shipping those samples off. 
Um, Dr. Dryden, we have a question from Denise in our live audience. She asks, will severe drought conditions cause grass to concentrate its sugar? So even when the grass plant is very short and the pasture looks dead, uh, can the grass still be dangerous for a metabolic horse? Absolutely. Anytime the, the pasture, the grasses are stressed, uh, um, an overgrazed scenario or a drought scenario, um, they can definitely be a high sugar content at those times, for sure. Um, we have a question from Valerie, Dr. Dryden, um, that's related. Um, what, and she's in our live audience, what are acceptable levels for sugar in starch and hay, and can she get away from having to soak it? You know, that's that extra chore to have to soak that hay to um, reduce the the carbohydrates in it yeah that's that's a great question um, and actually I would probably defer this to dr. Adams because I'm sure she has more uh, uh, values um, for this more current values than than I would um, if that's okay yeah. dr. Adams yeah no sure so non-structural carbohydrates um, these are the soluble carbohydrates mainly the sugars and starches right in the grass and the, and the hay um, and so what we're looking at are um, essentially values um, lower than 10 to 12 percent, definitely lower than 12 percent NSC um, values. If you could find a hay um, with 10 percent NSC values, that would be fantastic. And I hate to say this, but really these recommendations, the, the 10 to 12 percent NSC or below um, recommendations are really coming off of work that was conducted in um, PSSM horses. So we actually don't know what values we should be feeding that are really safe for the insulin dysregulated horse. But we um, are actually working on that right now. It's I, I hate to say it though, it's going to take us probably another year to get those numbers out or longer, but we actually don't really have the data or the research behind that. So we all just sort of refer back to that PSSM study and say that it's, you know, we should be feeding below 10 to 12 percent or at that level of NFC uh, in hay. And so um, I think, was that the only component of the question? Um, and, and soaking. Oh, sorry, soaking. So, yeah, if you don't have access to low NSC hay, um, then, you know, soaking may be your only option. And so um, soaking for a minimum of 30 minutes, um, but an hour would be better. Um, and then, of course, you need to drain the water off um, because that's going to have the sugars in it before you feed um, as best as you can. So if that's kind of your only option, that may be, I'm sorry, the best option we don't have. At the moment, we just don't have a, a lot of other options besides trying to find the crappiest hay, essentially, that you can, which can be difficult, especially around here in central Kentucky. Yeah, you guys are. Yeah, are, are I think we're yeah. on special right now. <laughs> yeah, we're special. And I, sure. I, might, I might add that the easiest way that I've been able to get my clients to soak hay, because, you know, getting them to do this is, is a little bit tough sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. It's to put the hay in a hay net and then put it in an, a big tub or a muck bucket or something that you're going to designate for your soaking. Fill it up, let it sit when you when you come out to do you know night check or whatever, and then pull it out in the morning. Let it let it ring out and hang it for them. 
it seems to be the easiest way. And that way you don't have, you know, a, a, an easy scenario to get the hay out of the water too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely tough this time of year when, you know, it's getting down to yeah. 20 at night and trying to uh, get hay soaked for, for those horses. Um, it, it adds to the, the challenges of managing them for sure. Um, we have a question from Penny, uh, Dr. Dryden, I'll give this one to you. Uh, she wants to know if a horse is on per- pergolide, should it be routinely tested for Cushing's to check for dosages and, um, and levels? Yeah, I typically uh, check my, my PPID horses uh, at least once a year, if not twice a year, um, checking their ACTH levels, making sure um, that they're able to maintain on the dose that we have if we need to adjust it up or down. Um, typically, they're going to start with one milligram tablet uh, once a day, um, and then if you're not able to control it, uh, you go up from there by half a milligram. For me, it's usually half a milligram. Um, and then just keep a monitor on it, but I, I say at least once a year, but I, ideally twice a year. Uh, Dr. Adams, Mark is in our live audience, and he would like to know what grass forages have the lowest sugar values. Right. Um, good question. So um, don't assume that the just because the hay might look not the best quality that it's going to have the lowest NFCs. So always, if you can, and if you have a large lot of hay that you're going to be using or purchasing, I would definitely try to send a sample off just to be sure. But, um, you know, we're talking about cool season grasses versus your warm season grasses. So your warm season grasses are more than likely going to have lower NFC values, but those are hard to get a hold of. So, you know, your Bermudas and Tests, um, cool season grasses, your Timothy's, Orchards, Bromes, and all of that, you know, they're going to have um, varying levels depending if they're early cut or late cut. So more mature hays um, are going to have, could have lower NSCs as well. So where does alfalfa fall in with with those options? Uh, good question. So alfalfa is high in digestible energy, and that's mainly coming from higher levels of protein. Typically, they're around about a. They can they can range, you know. They can range anywhere from 11 to on upwards to, you know, 18% um, NSC. So it just depends again on the lot and the cutting. If it's late cutting or early cutting. So late cuttings again will typically yield lower NSCs. But alfalfas are higher in protein, and um, you know protein can also be a driver of some of these responses. And so we just we still don't know a whole lot. If we feed a horse alfalfa, what's the response? If we feed a horse of Timothy, of Brome, an orchard, of um, Bermuda, I mean, what are the responses? Because they all have varying levels of starch, sugar, fructans, um, and all of that. So just a lot we don't know. Uh, Dr. Adams, uh, Phil in Alberta, Canada, wanted to know to what extent are these conditions caused by husbandry and to what extent are they possibly genetic? Yeah, good question. Um, there's actually a couple of groups that are working on the genetic aspect of equine metabolic syndrome, and that'd be Dr. Molly McHugh and Dr. Sam Brooks. Um, Molly's in Minnesota and Sam's in Florida. 
Um, and so we do know that some breeds are more predisposed to developing an equine metabolic syndrome, and they're more your thrifty type breeds, so your Morgans, your Papafinos, your Warmbloods, um, Tennessee Walkers. Um, so probably genetics are playing uh, a role there. We don't know that yet. We have not yet identified um, specific genes that are predisposing these horses um, to become equine metabolic syndrome, but they are getting fairly close, I think, to identifying some of those. Um, but we know that equine metabolic syndrome can affect all breeds. Um, and with that being said, those that are not more predisposed or thrifty breeds, more than likely, then it's a problem to inappropriate management, overfeeding, and not enough exercise. So I think there's both involved, depending on what breed you're talking about. And Dr. Dryden, Jackie in our live audience says she keeps hearing about pergolide, but that her horse is being uh, treated with uh, Thyro-L. What's the difference? So Thyro-L is basically a uh, synthetic, um, uh, it's levothyroxine, which is to help uh, increase metabolism in the horse. Um, and I use it a lot in these cases to help uh their, their body condition score to help them to lose weight um, and uh, help maintain a normal beta metabolic uh, activity. So um, it's a totally different uh, uh, component than the pergolide. The pergolide is actually being used to treat the, the pituitary pars and media, the, the adenoma in uh, the brain that is causing the, the increased ACTH. Um, and uh, so it's a completely different uh, scenario, but can be very helpful. Uh, the thyroid can be very helpful in some of these horses that are overweight to, to get them to, to slim down. Uh, Dr. Adams, we have a question from Roberta in our live audience. And uh, at the horse, we have our uh, equine nutritionist who writes for us every Monday, Dr. Claire Tunes, and she's going to be super excited to hear that this question got asked. Um, Roberta okay. wants to know, how do I find a nutritionist who can help formulate a diet for my EMS horse? Oh, that's great. I, I think um, that a number now of the nutritional uh, feed companies out there are very willing to help. So Purina, Neutrina, um, Buckeye Nutrition, all three of those are great, wonderful resources um, with very uh, knowledgeable people, very knowledgeable about metabolic problems. In fact, I think you could probably go, I think I was just on Purina's website, and they have a great, you know, uh, fact sheet about equine metabolic syndrome and feeding these types of horses. So everyone's quite aware. I mean, Triple Crown, Southern States, you know, Purina, all of these feed companies also have the low starch diet. So I think that um, they're very aware of the problem and they're very uh, proactive and would want to help you in uh, developing the proper diet and management for these horses. So I think just reach out to them, call them. Okay. And Dr. Dryden, do you work with any independent nutrition consultants or with, to help manage your cases? Um, yeah, actually, there's several in Lexington um, that uh, that uh, are very, very reachable. You know, you can you can do a search um, in your area, um, and like uh, Dr. Adams said, uh, these big the big feed companies um, are very willing to help um, promote and uh, get uh, get your 
your uh, your horses lined out. They they're very willing to do that for you. Um, I have a question, Dr. Adams, from Elena in our live audience. She wants to know where can I get my hay tested for NSC levels? Some of the labs send complex reports that are hard to interpret. So you do have to be a scientist to understand these reports that are coming back from the labs. Right, and I think, you know, the, the, these, so the number one lab or the gold standard lab, especially the, at least the ones that we um, trust and, and send our samples to and a number of people do is uh, Dairy One or Equianalytical, um, and they're out of New York. Um, and they, they have a great website and, you know, they have um, directions on how to collect your samples and then all the different um, options for what you want to have looked at. And so, um, and I, I know they are also very willing to help understand uh, the results from from your reports. And also, I think your nutritionist, working with your nutritionist, are going to be able to help you also um, determine and decipher what the, all of those results mean. Um, we have a question from Valerie in our live audience, Dr. Dryden. I'll give this to you, and Dr. Adams might have some input as well. But Valerie wants to know if PPID uh, does PPID or percent affect a horse's behavior. She said her horse became her mare became unrideable and dangerous this past fall and winter. Uh, what are your thoughts on that uh, as a vet? Um, PPID can definitely have uh, some characteristic changes in, in their mood swings. They can they can definitely be a little moody. Um, the one thing that I have seen on some horses um, being treated with Percend is being a little bit lethargic. Um, uh, you know, it's not all of them, but a few of them have been just a little bit sluggish uh, after being uh, treated for a while on, on the Percend. But uh, um, Dr. Adams, do you have any thoughts? Um, no, I think um, just exactly what you said. We typically see, you know, you might see early on a little bit of loss in appetite and lethargy, but that, that typically goes away, especially when the dose is adjusted. But um, in my experiences, we've never seen a horse react like that. But that might be a really good question for you to reach out to Berenger Engelheim um, and their technical support group, because I know they're also very willing to work with um, horse owners with horses with PPID and obviously treating them with their products. So, Is it possible for a horse that's been cushionoid maybe under the radar for a while, you start treatment and then that horse has all this energy because it feels better from treatment? Um, uh, that could be. <laughs> that could be, yeah. So, um, we have a another question from Valerie in our live audience, and she um, would like to know if you have any suggestions for treats that you can give horses um, with EMS. She said she wants to treat her her boy once in a while, but she also wants him to be healthy. Dr. Dryden, do you have any recommendations? Uh, moderation is key. Uh, you you know. Uh, a, an apple, slice of an apple, and a carrot here and there is not going to not going to put them over the edge. Um, but they do make some uh, zero sugar treats out there. Um, but uh, I don't think you have to be overly critical, um, you know, as long as everything in moderation. Yeah, and I think you could you know offer maybe a small handful of your low starch or weight control commercial diets out there that are um, low in starch and sugar. So just again, a moderation. 
Uh, Dr. Dryden, Karen in Belgrade, Montana had a question about mules. Are, are they affected differently by metabolic disorders? You know, mules are, are similarly affected. Um, I, I grew up with, with mules on our cattle ranch in Arizona and, and uh, you know, dealt with metabolic issues. And I, I guess at the time, uh, I, I didn't realize what we were dealing with. Um, but looking back on it now, it, it was exactly what it was. Um, and, uh, you know, dealing with numerous cases of EMS and, and laminitis in mules, it is very similar to horses. So I have to say that it, these issues can be uh, uh, manifest exactly the same way in mules as they can in horses and donkeys for that matter. Yeah, definitely. Um, Dr. Adams, uh, Corinne in our live audience wants to know what could be causing fluctuating insulin levels when you're consistently managing diet, exercise, and environment. Um, yeah, good question. Um, we are actually just wrapping up um, a seasonal study because I told you early on that insulin we think is not affected by season alone. Um, and that's been shown really in healthy horses. Not a lot of research has been done in the insulin dysregulated horse. So we jumped right into that and we're just kind of wrapping that study up. And we are seeing that we are seeing some fluctuations of season having an impact on insulin dysregulation. And that kind of coincided with fluctuations in um, Cresty neck scores and body condition scores. So an increase or change, slight change or increase in adiposity, which you may not be seen or is easy to see could change the diponectin, leptin, and some of these values, and they all may feed back and um, have an impact, you know, on insulin and insulin responses in these horses. Um, we really don't have a handle on why we're seeing that um, these changes in season over time because these animals are maintained on the same diet as well. Just sort of uh, opened up a Pandora's box probably. Um, Dr. Adams, we have a question from Emily in Ontario, Canada, and she wants to know if similar to people with having metabolic disease, can a horse simply have an underactive thyroid? Yeah, so it used to be thought that, you know, PPID and um, even sometimes EMS were referred to as because of hypothyroidism, but research has shown that's not the case, um, that it's very rare for a horse to be hypothyroid. Um, that their T3s and T4s are um, quite normal. Um, and the reason that we use levothyroxine uh, is essentially what um, Dr. Dryden said is to essentially speed up metabolism. It's not really to um, replace or um, in any way, shape, or form um, have anything to do with hypothyroidism. Um, Dr. Dryden, we had uh, have a question from Lisa in California, and she says that she has a horse she believes is insulin resistant. Uh, he refuses to eat supplements. What else can I do for him? Yeah, it's a, a great question, and you know, being a practitioner, getting uh, clients to, to get supplement horses, you have to get a little creative. Uh, one of the things that I like to do is uh, um, sugar-free applesauce. Um, put your put your the meds in in that in a dose or syringe and and give it to them that way, and at least they're not uh, objecting because you're putting something terrible in their mouth. Um, the other thing is you can use a small amount of ration balancer or your your low starch feed. Um, mix in your your supplements or your uh, 
uh, treatments, whatever you need. And then um, have a spray bottle of salt water, uh, just tap water and, and salt and spray that in there just to emulsify it. And so it sticks to the pellets and it doesn't, it, it has a nice salty taste. So that's one of the things that a couple of things that I've been able to um, do with my clients. It's helped. And Dr. Adams, we have a question from Roger in Texas, and Roger wants to know if there's any way to get a horse to shed his heavy coat that's related to PPID. Um, the pergolide's going to help with that. Um, so pergolide will actually help these horses shed out um, uh, more appropriately. It may not be back to normal completely but you will see changes once the horse is treated with pergolide and their ability to shut out better. Um, I don't know, Dr. Dryden, do you have any, other than that, I don't know of any other way at this point in time. I just use a, a tin blade. So go Pusher ahead blade. and body clip them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So with these horses, if you're needing to body clip them, what do you do in the wintertime or what recommendations do you make? Do people need to be uh, blanketing a PPID horse in the winter or do you let them get their regular coat in the winter? Is that coat yeah, appropriate I, I for keeping them. them warm? Yeah, I mean, it's, it all depends on your management and what the horse is going to be doing. Um, uh, you know, if, if, if you're up in Canada and they're they need they need a, all the coat they can get. Um, you're you're not going to clip them till the spring comes in and and the weather starts to warm up. So I mean it it just really depends on your management and and uh, where the horse is and the and what they're exposed to. Yeah, and if they're on the thinner side and are not insulin dysregulated, I think let their coat grow out and also blanketing if needed. Dr. Adams, we have a question from Kathy in Washington. Kathy has a 26-year-old Morgan who's been on Pergolide since he was 17. What is the progression of PPID and what can she expect as he continues to age? Yeah, so that's a good question and I'm, I'm glad. It sounds like she's been quite proactive um, in trying to catch this early on and not treating after the fact. So again, Pergolide won't stop the disease completely put the brakes on completely but it's really going to slow the progression down of that tumor um, and so you're then going to see slow um, progression you're still going to see slow progression um, of clinical signs so you are going to you know you're not going to see those happen as quickly as if you weren't going to be treated but you will see a very much of a slowdown in the development of clinical signs such as you know, the hypertrichosis and the, the the delay in shedding out and polyuria and polydipsia and muscle loss and all that, all that'll happen very slowly um, with him now being on pergolide. And um, yeah, I think that's all I wanted to say there. Dr. Dryden, did you have anything maybe to add to that? No, I, I think, you know, if the horse is 26 and he's been treated since he was 17, that's that's a great job. Yeah. Great. Good, yeah. good kudos awesome. to you. Yep. Uh, Terry in North Dakota wants to know about insulin resistance and laminitis. Should that horse continue to have exercise or is stall rest better? This is a great question. I'm really glad that it was asked because in the acute stages of laminitis, the foot is very unstable and I do absolutely do not recommend exercising the horse when they're still painful because those lamina are very, very, very um, 
they're fragile. And if you stress the horse by making them move in order to uh, exercise them, um, you're only going to disrupt more lamina and you'll have displacement, rotation, and possibly even sinking. So in those cases, I, I highly recommend that the horse be quiet and stabilized before we start to um, exercise them. So they're essentially, if they become laminetic, you've got to get them over the acute stage into the chronic stage where they're stable and then start to exercise them as they can tolerate because you don't want to overdo it. Um, we have a question, Dr. Adams, from Esther in our live audience. And Esther wants to know how pregnancy affects the hormones that are uh, involved in, in these different uh, syndromes. Um, good question. I don't know if we necessarily have the data behind that, but great question because pregnancy alone we know affects um, the rate of uh, metabolism. And so um, pregnancy can actually um, sort of, in some horses like some humans, you can develop gestational diabetes. And so that can happen in the horse as well. It can become slightly insulin resistant or insulin dysregulated with pregnancy alone. If the horse is already metabolic syndrome um, and or PPID, ID, that's not going to be the greatest scenario because then it's just going to worsen the underlying metabolic issues with that horse. Um, we have a question from our live audience. Uh, Dr. Dryden, I'll give this one to you. It's from Sylvia who wants to know if there's a correlation or have you seen a correlation with long-term PPID and calcium uptake and brittle bones in horses? You know, that's a great question. I don't know that I can definitively say I've seen a correlation. Um, typically, we see these in the aged horse, the geriatric horse, which does tend to have a more uh, brittle bone than a young horse. So um, I think it would be hard for me to make that correlation. I'm just not aware of any studies that have that have done that. Dr. Adams, are you aware of any? Yeah. No, I'm not. No. Uh, Dr. Adams, Shannon wants to know if EMS is a lifelong ailment or is it something that you can treat and rather than just manage? Oh yeah, good question. So once an EMS horse is EMS, um, typically likely to sort of stay EMS, especially if they're of a breed that's more predisposed, um, while weight loss and and, um, and all can happen in these horses by dietary restriction and exercise. If that horse is not tightly managed by diet and, and um, exercise, the weight is going to be very easy to come back um, and the fat pads very easy to come back on these horses. And in fact, you know, the adipose um, depots are very difficult to get off of these horses. So, um, yeah, I'd say that it's it's probably a lifelong um, battle, unfortunately. And then there's no research to show it, but we think that maybe the equine metabolic syndrome horse may tend to go on to become PPID later in life, but we're not 100% sure on this. Um, and then, Dr. Adams, we have a related question from Lori in Illinois. She wants to know if a horse is borderline insulin resistance, can the diagnosis be reversed by controlling diet and adding exercise? 
Yeah, so if they're borderline, if it's caught early, which is the best case scenario to improve insulin sensitivity, um, but very difficult if they really develop the severe crusty neck um, and all. So, you know, again, if they're the thrifty type, it might be difficult no matter what you try and do um, to manage. But again, being proactive um, and jumping on these things earlier by diet and exercise are definitely going to be in your benefit, but I can't guarantee you that it will prevent them to become full-blown equine metabolic syndrome case, especially again, if they're a breed that is more predisposed. I think we have time for one more question. Dr. Dryden, Andrea is in our live audience, and she wants to know what role stress plays in elevated cortisol and ACTH levels. Yeah, so that's another great question, and stress does have a role in elevated cortisol and ACTH levels, and oftentimes um, horses that are in a stressed situation um, and are laminitic, and, and I'm seeing them as a patient for the first time, um, I, I actually wait a little while, uh, about four to five days, and, and get everything calmed down before I pull blood to evaluate um, because I, I can have a skewed idea of what's actually going on because of the stress level. So um, that's an important thing to consider when we're when we're seeing a case for the first time and and uh, um, kind of judgment on that case um, when they're being in a stress situation. Okay. Um, well, that is all the time that we have for tonight. Uh, we covered a lot of ground. I feel like we ran a marathon <laughs> answering yes. these questions. Uh, Dr. Dryden and Dr. Adams, uh, thank you. I want to, um, we appreciate you guys being here and answering these questions. Um, I want to go ahead and thank everyone who submitted questions ahead of time and everyone who joined us live. We had a, a big crowd tonight and tried to get to as many of your questions as possible. Uh, we also want to thank our sponsor, uh, Metabarol, uh, which is made by Equithrive. I hope you join us next month when we're going to be talking about colic and early intervention to save lives. Until then, from all of us here at The Horse, have a great night.